uh, Romans 8 and let's read uh, the first 13 verses this morning. We looked at the the first four verses uh, yesterday. We'll read over those again to refresh ourselves in the context. Uh, Paul has expressed some lament, frustration in Romans 7, having a desire after the inner man to follow the law and to honour the Lord, um, but his flesh warring within him and ultimately failing and sin in his members bringing him into captivity and a declare of wretchedness leading forth to chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We might pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we anticipate and and seek understanding and illumination by your spirit. Lord, we long to hear from you and to understand your word that we might apply the truth. We pray for your, your ministry to our needs. Help us to see the ways in which we mind the things of the flesh and help us to follow the leading of the spirit that we might walk in the spirit. We pray for the power that we need to live the Christian life. We pray that we might not make the mistake of trusting in the flesh to sanctify us or to honour the Lord by our own effort, but rather, Lord, help us to see the path of fulfilling the righteousness of the law is by the power of the Spirit. We ask for your work to be done this morning. We pray that you might lead and guide as I preach, that we may know your word and understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul's problems from Romans 7 were that of sin and its consequence and his lack of righteousness. He desired to do the right thing but couldn't function and perform it. Too often believers live in the experience of Romans 7 where the flesh is dominant and the self is central rather than the power of the spirit and uh, the righteousness that the spirit seeks to impart. We're looking at dwelling or abiding under the shadow of the Almighty. And as a 
believer today, my concern for my own life and the lives of those that I minister to and your, your lives here is that we may not consistently and permanently abide in that close abiding relationship with our Saviour, in the fellowship I probably should say, um, because we so often stray in our thinking and our actions away from that place of obedience. Uh, we need the power of the Spirit to live a life that honours the Lord. Um, there are many times where we trust in the wrong means to seek that aim. Um, I can try and preach like great preachers, devoid of the power of the Spirit of God, and it is doomed to fail. I can wear the... Uh, I've got a couple of preachers that I listen to, and they have... I won't tell you who, but they have particular ties, very bright, colourful ties. I can put on a bright, colourful tie like some of my favourite preachers, but that won't give me power to preach. Only the Spirit of God will enable each one of us to live and to perform and to function as God intends. The Christian life can only be lived by the power of the indwelling Spirit. That's not a new concept either, because way back, uh, centuries earlier, the Lord told the prophet Zechariah, um, he said, this is the word of the Lord under Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. God's work is done by his spirit, uh, not by human effort. It is divine enablement that we need. We need it every day. It's always been this way. And righteousness will not be attained by our own effort. That doesn't mean it doesn't take determination, effort, consistency and faithfulness. You can't sit on the couch and become a mature Christian. You need to be in the Word, as we were talking this morning. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in fellowship. You need to be in assembly with believers. There are many things that we do, but the power for change and the power for enablement comes from God at work in us. What we'll see here in these verses is that, uh, and we see two sides of a coin here. There's a the description of a life that's led of the flesh and a life that's led of the spirit and the impossibility of the flesh pleasing God and the, the requirement or the obligation that believers have to walk in the spirit. We see, and there is, Romans is full of interpretive challenges and there will be some folks that might look at these passages and these verses and they might come to a, a different conclusion about whether this is talking about sanctification or justification um, and whether this is talking about believers who are walking after the flesh or unbelievers who are in the flesh, there's some interpretive challenges here for us. But I can preach as best as I'm able with the way the Lord's led me to understand these verses. I would say firstly, from verse 5, there are those who are after the flesh who have their mind on the things of the flesh. And let's think about that for a moment. Verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. It's my conjecture that those are believers, potentially, certainly unbelievers, only mind the things of the flesh. They are in the flesh and can do nothing else, but believers can and do adopt the same values and assessments and thoughts and mindset of those that are lost. Now, I would say that because the conclusion that Paul drives to in, in, down in verse 13, to believers, he says... You know, verse 12, we're not debtors, not to the flesh, but to live, after, to live after the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die, talking to believers. So believers can adopt the mentality that leads to a principle of death and destruction. Believers will not perish and will not go to hell. I'll say that as plainly as I can. This is not a salvation issue. But believers can adopt the mindset of the world 
and that mindset to lead them to a path of destruction in their lives, though they are saved. There will be fruit. I'm confident that believers saved by grace, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will bear fruit. We are created unto good works. But that doesn't mean that sometimes we can adopt the mindset of the world and be led down the same path of destruction. Some people think that the, the mind that's set on the things of the spirit and the things of the flesh are two separate spheres of thinking. Like the things of the flesh are the dirty dishes in the sink at home, they're the you know, annoying people at work, they're the mundane, they're the necessary, they're the earthly, they're the temporal, and the things of the spirit, well, they're the spiritual work of, you know, studying your Bible, praying, going to church, singing in a choir. So there's this, this distinction made in the minds of some people that if we as believers, we need to set our minds after the things of the spirit and not after the things of the flesh. But do you really think God intends for us to live a cloistered life in an ivory tower away from the practical cares of life. I asked a teenager this years and years ago and the question comes back in my mind. In fact, he asked me the question and I sat with it for a while. And he, the question was this, does God care about football? Football, that's coming up to the finals right now. Does God care about football? And I was like, um, he does. He cares about you and he cares about your attitudes and he cares about the things that you rejoice in. He cares about how you play. Now, being a spectator and being a player are two different things. I don't think he cares very much about who wins the NRL final. I don't really think God worries about that. But if you play sport, do you think God cares about how you play sport? How your testimony is on the field? How you, you interact with other people? Do you think that that's a... If you're there and you're walking in the spirit, that that's a spiritual kind of... Yes. It's not some weird dichotomy between, well, no, that's, that's of the earth and that's temporal and it's not important. No, no, no. God cares about football because he cares about us and he cares about how we live. Those Christians who walk in the spirit are not merely or simply holy men or holy women remote from life, so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. They're not modern monks, separate and, you know, restricted and kept away from the things of the earth, no, the Holy Spirit wants to fill, indwell and empower us to live led of the Spirit at the coal face of life, in the kitchen doing the dishes, on the football pitch playing with the unsaved people and ministering to them. You know, all areas and all spheres of life, there is not one after the flesh set of circumstances and after the Spirit set of circumstances. All things are yours, 1 Corinthians 3.21 says, and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. All of life needs to be brought into this mindset. So verse 5 is teaching us that the way we think is important. We know that, you know, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Um, we know the battle is fought and won or lost in the mind. The way we think is very important and it can either be uh, following the pattern, example and, and uh, the danger, the error of the world's way of thinking or it can be that where we are consumed with the Spirit. God's way of thinking, God's assessment. He who sets his mind on the values of the Spirit, on the attitudes of the Spirit, on the point of view and the, 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 the perspective of the Spirit walks in the Spirit. 
But he who sets his mind on the values of the flesh, the attitudes of the flesh, walks in the flesh. You would have heard the idiom. She sees the world through rose-tinted glasses. You've heard that phrase? It's a negative kind of comment, isn't it? It's about someone who just sees the positive in everything and they're naive, gullible, foolish, easily led. You know, she sees the world through rose-tinted glasses. What kind of lens do you view the world through? Because God has an intent for us to see the world through the lens of the spiritual and the truth about God and his plan and his, his, his purpose for you and for those people around you. God's desire is that we might be a witness and a testimony in the midst of the world in whom we, with whom we dwell. Let me ask this, just to, to help us see some examples about whether we are minding the things of the flesh or minding the things of the spirit. When it comes to work, how do you view it? I asked a young fellow yesterday about his work. He was out here and I can't remember his name, so I can't put him on the spot. All right. I said, what's the best thing about work? And I, I jokingly say the paycheck. He says, no, no, work's a ministry for me. And this fellow's fairly young. I was, I was a, like, amen. That's what I'm going to say tomorrow. <laughs> work is your ministry. It's, it's something, you don't do it for an end. You don't do it for the paycheck. You don't do it so that you can buy things that you desire or care for your family, even though those are good things. It's not wrong to buy things that you desire or to care for your family. But if that is the end of it all, then that's the fleshly way of thinking. The world does the same thing. They'll look at work as a necessity. We do it for the paycheck. You put up with this. Um, you know, you feed your kids. You pay your mortgage. You put, you know, the roof is over the, our house, we appre- over our heads. We appreciate that. But all that is very self-centered, isn't it? How do you spell flesh? How do you spell it backwards? Take away the H self so the mind of the flesh focuses on self and when it comes to work we can be very self-centered or we can think well what has God got for me here why does why has God got me working in this job why am I here is it for this ministry opportunity is it to teach me some things about patience endurance and tolerance with other people all of that that we do learn in those awkward circumstances so we can either sit in our circumstances of life thinking about ourselves, which is very fleshly, or we can think about what God is doing with us in that place. And one of those is thinking about the things of the flesh and the other, the spirit. That's in the workplace. What about in recreation? How do you amuse yourself? Oh, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I'm going to keep that a bit of a secret. Do you do it just to please yourself, to, to fascinate your mind, to, fill, to distract yourself from reality? I mean, a lot of Christians are caught up in this, this life of amusement, which is very fleshly, isn't it? But it's not wrong to amuse yourself. It's not. It's not wrong to entertain and to, to, to enjoy the things that God has made. Now, if those things are ungodly, then that's another issue. But if it is good things that you're enjoying and delighting in by means of entertainment... Are you giving the glory to the Lord in that? There are those who see recreation as, a, as an opportunity to show off, like we were talking about sport before. You know, some people will play soccer, play football, play golf, because it's an opportunity for them to show how talented they are. They brag about it. They like to beat the opposition. They like to win. And it's about winning and, and, and defeating and dominating, and it's about the glory that I can get. That's the flesh. But to play those games... To, to exercise yourself and to keep active and to keep connection with others. That's the spirit. 
could be the Spirit, I can't presume. But the mind of the Spirit permeates every sphere of life. What about trials? How many of us get frustrated when things don't go the way we anticipate? I'm guilty of it. I have a, my wife sitting there smiling at me when I said that. I looked in her direction and I shouldn't have. <laughs> when the plans are all set and, and then the plans all change, mate, you've just got to be more flexible. I know I do. I know I do. But I don't like it when things change. I don't like it. Is that the mind of the flesh or is that the mind of the spirit? I mean, well, that's the flesh. Because in trials, we can either look at them and go, well, that's the Lord doing this. And Brother Tracy preached on this and I'm not going to try and repeat what he said. He said it so perfectly, like so well. The vice illustration is sensational. The Lord puts us in these tight places for his purpose. You can, you can be there and in James you can read, we can count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trine of our faith works patience. I can get frustrated when things don't go to plan or I can go, well, thank you, Lord, that you're trying to help me, well, you, you are causing me to grow to be the perfect man and the entire man, wanting nothing, the, the man who is mature and patient. I can rejoice in trials like James exhorts us to or I can lament and, and fight the trials because I'm either looking at the world through the lens of myself or looking at the, the world through the lens of the Spirit, the lens of God. And that really dictates how I respond in all areas of life. What's the result? And we see it here, verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now I would submit to you that this is not simply saying that lost people will go to hell and saved people will enjoy life and peace. Because I think we are being warned here and called to walk in the flesh and not fulfill, walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, like Galatians tells us to. And that Christians can adopt a fleshly mind which leads to the principles of death. Because death here in this verse is not merely talking about the last breath that you, you breathe out in this earthly existence before you go off to eternity. Death here is not talking about your last breath. And it's not talking about the eternal death, the second death that lost people will face. No, it's talking about a principle of death that is alive and well in the world and even in the lives of believers when they, they view the world through the lens of their own self, where they think about themselves rather than God and his plan. What is death? You say, well, death is death. <laughs> no, death is not merely the end or the, 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 the ceasing of life, or even, we might say, eternal separation from God. You will have heard death spoke about in those terms. But let's bring it back into its simplest, distill it to its simplest kind of concepts. Death really comes down to four basic things. Fear, guilt hostility and emptiness. These are the forms of death that if we allow the flesh to dominate our thinking, this is the fruit. If, it's, if we look at the world through our own lens of our own self and what we want to attain, then the produced fruit is death. It is fear, guilt, hostility and emptiness. Fear can appear as worry, anxiety, dread, timidity, where we can be, be, be afraid Guilt shows up as shame and self-hatred and self-righteousness or perfectionism comes up on both ends where we can abhor ourselves 
or we can be boasting of ourselves because of our own shame, our own guilt. Hostility can be resentment, bitterness, revenge, cruelty. Emptiness can be loneliness, depression, discouragement, despair, emptiness, meaningless. All of these, this is what the, the fleshly mind produces. And we, we lament that. We see it in our own hearts. We see it as pastor. You see it in your congregation. And you, you minister to them. But the answer is in this. You've got to stop thinking about everything through the lens of your own heart, your own self. Stop walking in the flesh. Now, if you want to abide and dwell and remain under the shadow and protection of the Almighty and enjoy that intimate fellowship with Christ, you can't walk in the flesh fulfilling the lusts thereof and allow this death principle to be, to be robbing you of the opposite of these things, which we'll talk about in a moment, and producing worry, anxiety, shame, guilt, um, bitterness, resentment, loneliness and depression, all of these things without recognising the cause is that you're not trusting and not exercising faith in what God has said here in Romans 8. The mind set on the flesh produces death. But the mind set on the spirit. It says in verse 6, if I'm in the right place, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, there's the fruit of the right lens through which we see life, where God is first and foremost, and we are here as his servants and his blessed children to serve and to enjoy God in everything that we do. If death produces these things, then life is the opposite. If death is fear, then life is trust, hope and confidence. If death is guilt, then life is a freedom from that guilt, acceptance, security, assurance. If death is hostility, then life is love, friendliness, kindness, warmth. If death is emptiness, then life is a sense of well-being, fulfillment, vitality and fullness of life. Didn't Jesus say, I came that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly? Life is not merely the breath that we have today and the jobs that we have to do and the bills we have to pay tomorrow. I mean, if that's all it is, then the principles of death are at work in you and you won't bear these precious blessings as God is not in the picture. The implication is plain. There is one path of thinking, one way of thinking that that dishonours the Lord and produces destruction. There is one way that honours the Lord and produces life. Now, verses 8, 7, 8, and 9, we see what I think is a parenthesis here because Paul makes a bit of a distinction that I think is important for us to, to draw out. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Oh, we can mention on verse 7 here, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is the enemy of God. Doesn't God resist the proud but give grace to the humble? Does God resist the proud-hearted believer? I think he does but give grace to those that humble themselves and acknowledge that he is God and we are not, that we are to submit to him in all that we do and to embrace his attitude and his, his uh, assessment and his thinking and his value system in the way we experience life. The humble one does what God wants to be done. All right, so verse 8, we see the after the flesh versus in the flesh. And there's a bit of a change here that I want us to really notice I've been mentioning here that there are those that are after the flesh in verse 5 who are minding the things of the flesh. 
I think that's talking about potential believers who are following the pattern of the world. But then he makes a distinction in the phrase in verse 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I believe that we are in Christ as believers. So what did verse 1 say? There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ, walk not after the Spirit, but after the flesh. I think believers are in Christ and unbelievers are in the flesh. And here in verse 8, he goes to talk about there are those in the flesh that can't please God, but ye are not in the flesh, talking to believers, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. This, uh, this deflates the false doctrine about second blessings, all right, a second measure of the Holy Spirit. No, the moment you get saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. And if you didn't receive the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. And this, this little parenthetical statement here, verses 8 and 9, says that there are those that are in the flesh that can't please God, but you're not in the flesh, believers. You're in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if someone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he's not, he's not Christ. He doesn't, he's not saved. So this is like a little parenthetical statement. It makes plain... And it also exposes us to the truth or reminds us maybe of the truth that we know that unsaved people can look saved. Because he's here warning about this. He's saying that there are people that might be from the outward perspective, they might look like they've got things together, but if they don't have the Spirit of Christ, they're not saved. Yeah. We need to be mindful of that, that the external can appear something that the internal doesn't reflect. There are some very morally, I actually know many morally upright unbelievers and you might meet them and I know they're not saved because I've talked to them about the Lord, they've rejected him, but they are very clean cut people that look Christian and I could introduce you to them and you probably say, it's a lovely person, you're hoping he might be saved, but he doesn't have the spirit of Christ and his, his, his assessment and the lens through which he views the world is of the flesh and he cannot please God because he is in the flesh. There is no other means for him. So, verse, let's go down to verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raises up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. It's a great statement. Resurrection power at work in a believer. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the one that works in us, raising us and, and quickening our mortal bodies by his spirit dwelling in us. Now, there's a, sadly, I think some people read this and think that this is talking about glorification that one day we will be glorified and the power that the spirit and the power that rose Jesus from the dead will resurrect us and glorify us. But it says that this work is to be done in our mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in us. The mortal body is this one. This is the body that is dying. But here the resurrection power is at work in this mortal body. So this is not, I believe, a reference to glorification, which he does go on to talk about later in this chapter, but rather the resurrection power through the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, quickening and making alive these bodies that we may live a life in obedience to the word, the precepts, principles and the law that we might honour Christ. The flesh is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive living within us and righteousness will be 
the result. I'm so grateful that this is God's plan for believers. I'm, salvation is more than trust in Christ and be free from sin's penalty. Because if that was all it was, we would have no power to live a life that honours the Lord. We would be like Paul in Romans 7, struggling to perform works of righteousness, which he desires and knows that honours the Lord, without the enabling ministry of the Holy Spirit within us, quickening our mortal bodies. This outer man perishes, yes? But the inner man grows day by day, grows stronger day by day. And I'm grateful that salvation is not just a past done transaction, but an ongoing ministry of God in the lives of his own, changing us to be like his son. So what is our obligation? Verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. It's interesting, Paul doesn't use the words of, of command here. This is more a, a, a word of obligation. Because these things are true, because we are being quickened by the power of the Spirit, the resurrecting power of the Spirit in our mortal bodies, he goes on to say, therefore, brethren, we're debtors not to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything, but we are debtors to live after the Spirit. It says, and I'll read it properly, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. And I think that's a reference to that death principle continuing. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now, if we're talking about eternal security here, and you think this is talking about eternal life and glory or eternal destruction there when it says die, you've got a real tricky tangled web to, to work out when it comes to your works in relation to all of that. I think this is talking about the principles of death and the principles of life that are the result of the right thinking or the wrong thinking in the life of a believer. We, we don't have to sin and we could jump over and Romans 6 is a really good passage which really fleshes this out, I'm not I'm trying to use that word unintentionally. But Romans 6 verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That's as plain as it can be. We don't have to sin. I'm not trying to say that we're all able to be sinless in our walk, but we don't have to let our eyes look at the wrong things. Now, why? Because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to say the things that maybe our fleshly frustration thinks and desires. We don't, have to, we don't have to put that into practice. Why? Because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to allow our ears to hear things that are hurtful. We don't have to let our minds give way to thinking that is wrong and, and selfish and vicious and covetousness and lustful. We don't have to let our minds run that way. Why? Because of the indwelling power of the Spirit. Now, Paul was wrestling with all of this. His mind in chapter 7 desired the right things and the things that he should do, he didn't do. The things that he knew he shouldn't do, he did. Now, with the power of the Spirit on display, Paul is explaining to us that those things that we, we know we shouldn't do, we don't have to do. We're obliged, we're indebted to the Spirit of God to live as sons of God led by the Spirit of God. Present your body as a living sacrifice, doesn't it say? 
Romans 12, we'll come to that, but we won't in this conference. If we seek to live according to the flesh, we will die. But if we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, we'll live. Oh, there's much that could be said. There's much that could be said. We're going to start looking next time or tonight at the, the doctrine of adoption. And Paul points to this here in verse 14. And I'll say this as a little bit of a preview for what we're going to talk about tonight. A number of things. But I think here, like every believer who is in Christ is adopted into the family of God. Everyone. Every saved person is adopted into God's family. But I do believe that some believers demonstrate the character of their father more than others. Now, I've got a number of children and I, they're here, so I need to be careful. There is one of my children, there is no doubt that she is her father's daughter because she copies the characteristics of her father. For better and for worse, she is her father's daughter. You would know this. this. The son is the image of his father. And here I think, though all Christians, all saved people are the children of God and have an inheritance and we are joint heirs with Christ and there is all of this wonderful, these truths of adoption that we'll get on to talk about and we can go to our father and cry, Abba, Father. All of this is true for all believers but I think as he concludes this issue of walking in the Spirit and, and looking at life through the lens of the Spirit rather than the lens of the flesh and rejecting the carnal fleshly mentality and that way of life that leads to destruction, the conclusion here is, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the, you live through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, and I think that's those who follow the leading of the Spirit of God in this area, they are... It says the sons of God, but I would say they are the sons of God that replicate their father. They're the ones that you look at and go, they're, they're his father's son. Not saying that there's two classes necessarily of Christians here, but I think this is the fruit that the obvious assessment in the end is that people who follow the Spirit manifest the character of their father. And the people who don't, Christians who don't, then they don't accurately, though they are the sons of God and they are you know, heirs with Christ and all of that that we'll talk about, they probably don't replicate that. And the, the, the family resemblance isn't strong. Let's put it that way. For those that follow the Spirit, the family resemblance is strong. Those who follow the flesh, not so much. So I'll leave you with this question. Which one, which glasses have you got on today? Lens of the Spirit, lens of the flesh. Okay, we all go, we're at conference, we're here, it's wonderful, we're under the preaching of the word, we prayed before we came in, we're, we want to know, yes, we've got the lens of the spirit, we're, we're minding the things of the spirit today. What happens when someone cuts you off on the way home? <laughs> Swap our glasses really quickly, don't we? We go, whoop. So my, my, my encouragement for me and for you is that we would take note of whether we are looking through the lens that God wants us to look through. Because we want the life, we don't want the principle of death. Right? We, we, we want the Spirit to produce in us life and peace. Well, that means keeping those glasses on and thinking the way God wants us to think, following His Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we pray that You might enable us to maintain the, the focus and the thoughts that honour You. Help us not to, to make the mistake of thinking that life is about us. 
uh, that we are the center of our own existence. Rather, Lord, help us to see that you are the center of all, that you're above all, you're in all, and all things are created by Christ and for him, and everything consists by his power. Lord, we pray that we might have a high and exalted view of our Saviour and that we might humble ourselves in that, in that understanding. Lord, help us to keep and maintain that thought through the trials, through the mundane, at the coalface of life, where things can really, uh, really subtly move in our thinking and we can find ourselves being selfish and proud rather than spiritual and honouring you. So we just commit these things to you and pray that you might work in our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.